Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DC Beer Show. I'm Richard, here with my good friend. Adam. And we are in the District of Columbia at DC Brow, talking to Jeff Hancock and Brandon Skull in uh, the tap room here. Uh, all cozy. Yeah, welcome, <laughs> welcome. Round table. Thanks, guys. Thank you both for being here. This is a really exciting one for us, because obviously you guys are sort of groundbreakers in brewing in D.C. Uh, for those of you who don't know, which is probably no one, D.C. Brow was the first production brewery in the District of Columbia since like 1956 when the, the Hyrex uh, Brewery closed here. So, um, yeah, and I have fond memories of coming here when you all opened Getting the little tickets to taste beer. <laughs> right. <laughs> the I forgot about the I tickets. When the yep. tickets went away, it was like ticket gate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, was a there was some outcry on that. Much one. controversy. <laughs> um, let me explain what that what that's all about, since some of the folks listening to this might not actually know know the details. So back when you guys opened, uh, it wasn't legal to serve a pint of beer in a tap room. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So so you guys had to basically you could do tasters and people could get a certain number of tickets. And taste. Correct. Actually, um, uh, when we first opened, it wasn't even legal for us to do tasters. So wow. uh, we, we wrote some legislation in 2011 that allowed us to do tasters. And the, uh, the caveat on that, on that legislation was that we could only give out 12 ounces of beer per person per day. Thus, wow. the tickets. Wow. So the tickets yeah. were sort of like our way of making sure that you were only getting 12 ounces total mm-hmm. and you know you could redeem a ticket for whichever you know flavor of beer you wanted um, but not to exceed four got it yeah, yeah that was that was an interesting time having to go to the uh, city council and yeah basically ask permission to give away free beer Wow. And then it's that kind of uh, going and, and getting laws written and, and sort of doing that level of lobbying. Do either of you have a background in that? Or you, I mean, it's D.C., so there's a lot of people in public yeah, affairs. Yeah. Not really. No, yeah. we don't. Yeah. We figured we had a nice, um, you know, a good collective voice between Brandon and myself. And, um, you know, I think with most times when you're going in front of your local jurisdiction and, you know, you kind of bring up the revenue that you're going to be generating as far as taxes go and things like that, um, you know, you kind of snap the attention pretty quickly. You know, because it's like you guys want to give us the ability, um, you know, to be able to sell beer and give away tasters that can in turn lead to more sales. And yeah. Yeah. And really just, you know, one of the issues there was just the massive amount of time, as you've alluded to, there really hadn't been a production package brewery in the city since 1956. So a lot of the laws that surrounded um, the brewing industry had not been updated in that time period. So grocery stores, retailers, those businesses had all been alive and well and thriving and have had people lobbying to modernize uh, the industry. And so in this regard, you know, we we had the ability based on the current law as it was written to sell beer to go out of here. We could give tours here and we could sell beer for wholesale out of here, but uh, we couldn't taste people on the beer. And that was obviously something that we saw as a uh, uh, something that we wanted to change so that we could be more aligned with uh, areas surrounding the district, and um, and we saw we saw a need to sort of you know adjust that and and that was the first legislation we ever wrote and it was pretty much just us on that one because we were the only brewery at the time. Um, so yeah, a lot of the time people were just wondering you know why hadn't there been a brewery? Was there no brewery license on the books? Was it illegal to operate a brewery in Washington, D.C.? And the answer was no, it was not illegal. And there was a brewery license on the books. Just all the laws that surrounded um, uh, owning and operating a brewery were very antiquated. All right. 
Right. Yeah, and that was something that um, I feel a lot of consumers and you know people that were potentially looking to open up a brewery around the same time we were. Yeah, everyone thought that we had to rewrite the laws to be able to include like a manufacturing business such mm-hmm. as ourselves. Mm-hmm. But that was actually, like Brandon was saying too, the easy part that was already on the books. It was just the little carve-outs that we needed to you know, kind of make it more of a whole business. Right, right. Were there any other laws that you had to work to change to really get up and running or to, to move forward after that point? Because you like, opened in 2009, right? 2011. So we incorporated okay. in 2009. 2009, okay. Yep. And then you opened in 2011. Yep. I would say um, the tasters was probably the main thing. We were, at the time, doing some lobbying around growlers, but as we combed through the existing legislation, we saw basically a carve-out that said, in sealed bottle containers, you could sell beer mm. to go. So mm. yeah. we Was that just, why we you had to do like, the... Uh, yeah, so we had to Yeah, the heat shrink sealed. The heat shrink, yeah. that's um, it, yeah. Yeah, so thankfully, you know, we were... Unfortunately, we were already about 75 to 80 percent um, completed through getting that law changed. And then at kind of the 11th hour, you know, we, we were spending countless hours just reading through the mind numbing, you know, <laughs> laws of, uh, you know, D.C. and the council. And right. it's kind of oh, like man. one of those aha moments when we saw that. We were like, great, we can stop where we're at and sell beer to go. Let's not forget, too, that, you know, we spent a lot of our... Uh, valuable startup capital on getting that uh, tasting law written. Mm-hmm. So we had just spent a lot of money doing that, all, you know, by ourselves, grassroots style, and funding uh, that ourselves, and all the legal fees that came along with writing that legislation. So we really were not looking forward to uh, spending more valuable cash for this growler uh, modernization. And but what we found when we looked through the laws, like Jeff was saying, is it was really just the word growler. That seemed to be illegal because a growler was a seal, was a glass bottle, and by putting a seal on it, we met the definition for what we could sell. So we actually uh, wrote a letter to Abra stating we are going to. It used to be up there. Yeah, we, we used to it, have it. Uh, <laughs> saying that hey, we as of this date, which was a future date at the time, as of this date, we are going to start selling beer in quote unquote growlers, and the reason we're going to do that is we feel that we are legally allowed to. Uh, by the current uh, definition of the law. And then we spelled it out and, you know, put our, our reasoning in there. And we were very pleased when we received a letter back from Abra signed by all the members of the committee saying, okay, go right ahead and do that. And that was a really cool moment for us, uh, I would say, in, in the startup. I think to your question, though, we didn't have to change any other laws really for startup, but one of the biggest and most significant and impactful laws um, since we've been open was the ability to serve pints uh, mm-hmm. and, and serve on-premise in our tasting room. And that was a really great collective effort. That was a few years later once there was more breweries open. Uh, and Justin from Atlas did a lot of leading that charge. Uh, so I want to give him some props for that. Right. Uh, but there was definitely a lot, um, a lot of significance to that change, I, w- mm-hmm. I would say, in the course of the entire D.C., production brewery scene absolutely Uh, it really changed the face of of what it meant to visit a brewery yeah yeah i mean it's we live very very close to three stars yeah Uh, and so that change i know changed our behaviors about what we what we were doing on our weekends Uh um yeah uh just it became a place to hang out and not a place to just swing by basically uh and and so that was i think that that was really important and um now what's the regulatory environment like now in DC, and and are there things that you are still working on to get changed or updated or resolved? Yeah, we do a few things that are in the works. Um, you know, the environment is still it's still a friendly environment. It's still friendly to business. 
Um, and we're just, we're still a budding industry. You know, eight years later, um, there's a lot more breweries here. We're, we're I think, still a, a young industry in this town. Mm-hmm. And manufacturing in D.C. in general, uh, it's not something that you automatically think of as being a thriving industry in D.C., but it is a budding industry. There's a great maker community here. There's a great uh, crafter community here, right. whether it be physical crafts or food crafts or in this case liquid crafts mm-hmm. um so we're starting to get a really great collective voice and you know the dc brewers guild is something to mention it's yep. been really cool to see that come together and have an advocacy group that can help advocate for um our rights and some of the things that we want to see change and um yeah it's been a really cool collective uh, conscience that's been established since those early days yeah, and we are uh, yeah we you know there's kind of always something to be working on um with the uh, city government, city council for us makers, like Brandon was saying. Um, but, you know, to their credit, um, you know, the laws like we were talking about, um, the pint law, you know, they, uh, they kind of responded when we basically kind of told them we'd like this to go into effect as soon as possible. So a lot of the measures uh, regarding our laws got put through kind of on like emergency omnibus style nice. um, resolutions. So, yeah, they've been, uh, I think they see that it's, you know, a new market. It's not so much a white collar town anymore. It's got like mm-hmm. a nice little homegrown scene. So, awesome, awesome. Obviously, since you guys opened, there have been a lot of changes. You've mentioned yeah. like now there's more breweries. Um, we're seeing more brew pubs opening up. Uh, we're seeing like places like Denison's expand and Aslan move into mm-hmm. to uh, uh, Alexandria or Arlington. Can't remember. Anyway. Tell us a little bit about where you see the the, comp, the competitive nature and the, the state of breweries and brew pubs in this region now. Where you see it going, and it, you know, is it, are we going to see more and more and more extent, expansion here? Or are we getting close to saturation? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, I don't know. You know, Brandon and I always talk kind of about like you know the proverbial bubble that might hit eventually when things get stretched too thin, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think there definitely will be a saturation point. Who knows when we'll see it? Um, I think we're kind of there within D.C. I know Virginia has a lot of territory. I know, um, you know, thankfully for us, when we opened, we got in on the distributor model side on right. the earlier, um, you know, formation of the company, which was good. And I think with a lot of these new breweries, there's not a whole lot of shelf space available. So you see that taproom model um, being kind of pushed very aggressively, and obviously consumer has a need for, you know, like beer release after beer release. You know, if you can put out two or three in a given week, obviously (laughs) it's harder for us because we're a little bit bigger, but we're, you know, with that said, we're getting back to our roots and, you know, brewing brewing new styles that people want to drink and then kind of keeping in touch with the, uh, with the classics. But yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know where the end is. I know when we started, there was roughly 1500 breweries in the entire country. I think now it's approaching 8,000. Yep. So, yeah, you know, it's just, you know, if anything, it forces you to stay relevant, competitive on your toes and, um, you know, ever evolve. Uh, I've got some thoughts on this. But first, let me take a pause and sip this brand new delicious (laughs) uh, beer just released by DC Brow, the uh, Cherry Lime Ricky Goza. I'm enjoying enjoying the Cherry Lime Goza very much. What an exciting new style (laughs) released by DC Brow. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it is fantastic. To Jeff's credit, this this beer is amazing. I am really really pleased with how this beer came out. Jeff did an amazing job. With yeah, this. Um, thank you. Yeah, it just knocked summertime right on the nose, which is awesome. Um, it's it's yeah, it's it's perfectly tart, perfectly fruity, and really light and very crushable. Listeners might not know, but if you're listening to this a little bit later, this show is recorded during that crazy heat wave. It's like oh, a yeah. hundred degrees outside right now, so. Yeah. 
Is this really hitting the spot? At least 100 Uh, degrees. Yeah. In in regard to this, in regard to the question, though, like, this is unprecedented, right? You know, so, um, yeah, you know, when we opened, there was 1,800 breweries in the country. Earlier this year, there was 7,500. Who knows where it's going to finish at the end of this year? Mm -hmm. This is more breweries than we've ever had in this country before. Yep. So we don't, I don't, I I would agree with you. I don't exactly know when this bubble is going to burst. But I don't think it's sustainable. But wow, what a dynamic industry. I mean, one of the things we've seen is just how this industry evolves. You know, when there's the brew pub model and there's the production model. Those were mm-hmm. basically the two models when we started this business. Right. Since then, this taproom model has really evolved and become like a premium model uh, in, in our industry. So mm-hmm. we have watched the industry respond to competition by growing and changing and adapting. And, you know, that's why it's hard to say... What's going to happen when that saturation point's going to come? Because it is such a dynamic industry, and it does evolve, and it does change, and it does respond to what's going on. And it reminds me of, you know, like where there's a will, there's a way. And people who open breweries and, and people who are brewers, they're very passionate, right? Right, right. Very passionate yeah. for what they're going to do. There must have been 50 times when we were opening up the brewery that it seemed like some obstacle arose that was like, well, that's going to be the end of this idea. You know, like the dream is dead. Um, But, you know, it persevered because we were so passionate about it. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a common thread. You know, there's all sorts of brewers. Uh, There's the metal brewers and the Grateful Dead brewers and nobody else. Right. Uh, So there's there's all sorts of brewers, right? And one common thread, though, that aligns everybody is how passionate they are for the industry and for what they do. And so I think we're going to continue to see uh, this industry change. And I don't know exactly what that next change is going to be, but the taproom model is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, who knows where we're going to be, but we're going to find out and it's happening rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely changing fast. Wow. I'm really glad I like both the Grateful Dead and metal. <laughs> <laughs> can go anywhere. Your bases are covered. <laughs> so I like both too. And like, people are like, you can't do that. <laughs> you have to choose. They're going to let you on. Highlander. Pick, pick a side. <laughs> Uh, all right, we were yeah. talking, and you introduced this lovely cherry lime goza. I know Adam's got some questions yeah. about beer. No, no, no. I'm just. Well, I want to get us. I want to get us off the history. It's been really interesting to talk yeah. about. It's really interesting to think about that. But let's talk about some beer. Well, and I mean, segueing from that, I think it's great to to hear how that regulatory framework affected the style of beers you brewed when you started, and how that evolved now and where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, um, yeah, kind of, you know, when we first started, some of the original pilot batches of Citizen Corruption and Public, respectively, were completely different styles. Um, at that point, you know, <laughs> it's like, brewer makes the beer that he wants to drink, but right. then obviously starting a brewery, you got to take into mind the consumer. Um, yeah, so of course, you know, Public actually started as like a Belgian brown ale that I brewed uh, when I was wow, up in Michigan. Really? Wow, and, Belgian uh, a Belgian brown ale. <laughs> yeah, right. and then I was like, well, the first beer that actually, the first craft beer that clicked for me was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, like, yeah, I mean, I was used to having older friends buy me, like, Sam Adams Cherry Wheat and, like, J.W. Dundee's Honey Brown in high school. So when right. I first had a hoppy beer, I'm not going to lie, it tasted like crap. And I was like, you know what? They're doing something right, so I'm just going to drink it until I like it, <laughs> which was, of course, the case. And then... um yeah, I figured, you know, the pale ale was kind of a good style to lead with at the time. You had a lot of good IPAs out there, but I think pale ale kind of ruled the market. Um, and then I think the second beer we actually made was it was either the, the Citizen Belgian Ale or the, or the Porter. I don't it was quite... The porter. Porter. It was the Porter. Yeah, the Porter, yeah. Um, so yeah, always being a big Porter fan, robust Porter. Um, I finally 
literally only as of three months ago stopped tinkering with that recipe finally. It's been like a slow, like, how many different combinations of roast malt, black malt, and chocolate malt can I do? Um, But yeah, you know, and then um, the IPA uh, concept came through. We, you know, found out about Columbus hops, and I really liked the piney, dank, resinous flavor of them. Mm -hmm. So we decided to make an all-Columbus IPA, which at the time people were like, that's crazy. It's only a bittering hop. Right. But yeah, and then kind of fast forward now, you know, we're not, um, you know, citizens off the regular rotation. It's Mm going to come back on some guest appearances like annually. But yeah, we subbed in the Hazy IPA and I'll be the first to admit that being kind of an old school brewer, you know, I'm like, if it's not a Hefeweizen, what's wrong with clear beer? Right. Um, But (laughs) yeah, you know, like I think uh, it was fun kind of getting to know the style one-on-one and it was a very long kind of trial and error period for me doing hop combinations, hop tea steeps and getting feedback from people here on staff. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and now it's going to probably quickly surpass at some point um, our pale ale and IPA sales. So uh, just goes to show you. It already has Eclipse of Pale Ale that's coming well. in for IPA. And technically it's our, our top selling beer because it only has slightly above half of the points of distribution of corruption, mm. but it's just a few cases behind it. Um, so it's, you know, almost turning over kegs at a 2x rate to our top selling beer, wow. Corruption, yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is a monster in this city, Corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, it, you'll find it everywhere. So, um, yeah, you know, to Jeff's point, I think we, when, when we first started, actually, we brewed the, the core beers, and then we were putting out different beers yeah. on a constant basis. I mean, you know, a lot of those are, are now archived if you go back to Rate Beer or Beer Advocate. But there's Pyramids Under the Sea. There was uh, Theory and Practice. There was a, a whole bunch of one-offs. Time that just after came, time. Time after time <laughs> that just came down the line because um, when we were starting off, I mean, there was only so much public corruption and citizen that our distributor could sell. But... Right. You know, we were having a lot of fun coming up with all these unique one-offs, and we would get those out in the market. And then, all of a sudden, the core brands just locked in and took off. Um, right. We switched to another distributor, and they were really great at, at distributing core brands. And so, public corruption and citizen became, like, our life. It was just mm-hmm. like, we didn't have time or space in the brewery to brew anything else. And... We were in that cycle for many years, just maintaining those core brands. And we still obviously put out really cool stuff like Armageddon and Alpha Domino Mellis and Ghoul's Night Out, if anybody remembers that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was like we were just in this pattern of maintaining that, that flagship mm-hmm. so that we didn't lose those, those placements. And it wasn't until we got the new system um, that we were able to say, okay, you know, now we can get back to brewing some some really cool one-off stuff and putting the time into it. And at that time, also, um, you know, we had a full brewing staff, this new system going. So it really opened up Jeff to be able to sit down and write some really cool. He had the time now to sit down and devote to writing some really cool uh, one-off recipes. And, right. You know, I think we've seen a lot of that now. You know, coming to market, which is which is really cool. We had. Uh, you know, a lot of cool one-off specialty releases the past year and a half, mm-hmm. and the plan is to keep it going. Cool, cool. Wow. Well, you know, the Ricky Gozas, Cherry Lime Ricky Gozas yeah. is a good one. Everything about that, making that one a repeat, a repeat brew. Yeah. There's like, you know, there's a difference between chasing a trend and paying attention to what's going on in the market. And mm-hmm. I think we were apprehensive, uh, we were apprehensive to brew a hazy for a while because, you know, we 
A didn't want to just jump on a trend bus. Right. Yeah. You know, which, right. which yeah. uh, you know, that happens all the time. And, and it's like, hey, you know, we, we've got a brand that we're proud of, that we've got some classic beers we've established, and we didn't want to just jump on a trend bus. Uh, but also, did you make a brute? Just kidding. Uh, we didn't make a brute, actually. <laughs> we talked about it. But, you know, but it's also, it's also like if you're not paying attention to what's going on in your industry, then what are you doing? Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so right. um, last year it became apparent that, like, Citizen, though we love that beer, and there's a, there's a group of people in this town that love that beer, and we appreciate that. You know, it was down 35. percent Yeah, it's like, and that's for a core beer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and one that okay. and one that picked up a medal years ago at GABF, yeah. silver yeah. silver for French ale. But yeah, we're very proud of that. Beer. Yeah, yeah. It, it actually won two. No, it just yeah, just the one. It was the Patters beer that won the other. Silver. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, but you know, it said okay, it's time that we replace this beer, mm-hmm. and we need to replace it with something that the market is responding to. And from that point on, once we decided that we were going to do a hazy, um, you know, that was when the R and D started, and uh, we were able to really utilize all of the functionality that we built out in the brewery, the lab, um, you know, all the, the brewing process um, with the new system and everything to really make a product that we're proud of. And what we've seen this year is the market respond to that. I mean, it's become essentially our yeah. top selling beer. Yeah. And within a, within, by the end of this month, I would think that it will actually eclipse corruption. Um, and it's only been in the market since April. So, wow. you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you want to yeah. veer away from trends, but you got to pay attention to, to what's happening. Right. So it's a balance. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your new system? I mean, what's it like? What sure. capacity? All of that. Yeah, so when I was um, kind of, you know, working through my various apprenticeships at different breweries, um, spent a lot of time getting very acquainted with um, English ales um, brewed on a pretty, I think at the time before you had these crazy... Um, I would say like maybe the second wave of brewers here in the States. This guy from England named Peter Austin and he made a very rudimentary direct fire kettle that you know this brew house had exclusively worked with <laughs> Ringwood Yeast Strain. So mm-hmm. got to work on that a bunch and then um, also to that effect, you know, had uh, had some valuable time working under, you know, a technically trained German brewmaster from Germany. Cool. And so when the time came to expand, you know, and we're moving away from our, our original 15-barrel system, which is, um, you know, very manual, very hands-on, uh, we had started bringing the Pilsner um, before we got the new system. But the new system was great. You know, it's um, made by a company called GEA. Uh, we have essentially the smallest brew house they make at around 40 hectoliters. Hmm. And uh, they normally make much larger uh, systems. I think Bell's has a 300-barrel GEA wow. system, uh, Lagunitas. So they do a lot of much larger installs sure. and much larger craft and non-craft breweries. But, I mean, no, it's great. It's I'd say it's about 90% automated. You know, when I was rewriting the uh, recipe efficiencies and working with... So we basically had a structural engineer from Germany, a software engineer, and a PhD-level brewmaster here, like, helping us commission the system. So Wow. You know, yeah, missing a- missing target gravity and getting a hundred percent efficiency versus ninety eight was an interesting one to do corrections <laughs> on paper. You know, say for example, we have like a fifteen hundred pound grist. You know, and literally removing five pounds out of that whole thing, sometimes even less, like made the difference. Yeah. But you know, with that, it's uh, it's allowed us to do like you know step mashing regi- regimes. We have decoction capability. We haven't quite played around with it yet because it's a little daunting. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Um, 
But no, it's great. You know, it's twice the size of our old system, so we're able to get you know double our daily throughput, which used to be around um, you know two thousand gallons. Now we can do four. If we ran a true twenty-four hour day, we could probably do close to close to five. Hmm. Um, wow. But yeah, you know, and uh, it also allows for just flexibility. If some you know if there's a problem with it, and we can't brew for a couple days due to repairs or maintenance, like we can catch up very quickly. Versus sure. over here on the old system where, it, you know, we were just grinding out hard. You know, you're manually graining out, which took a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and over there, when you're starting a brew, like, pretty much every drop of water is programmed in. So you're not really wasting anything. And, cool. you know, if you miss a step, it has these watch times programmed in. So there's basically, like, a foghorn that you'd hear on a ship. And if you kind of <laughs> miss this window, it starts kind of blaring at you, like, hey, dummy, come back to the brew house. You need to do something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but the you know we're able to shave thirty minutes off of our boil. Um, it's just designed to produce better beer. We were worried that there was going to be um, a lot of flavor matching um, right. going from the old system to the new. But if anything, it just took the beers that we thought were already tasting great and just made them taste that Excellent. much better. Excellent. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been great from that standpoint. And uh, you know, with everything, it has its challenges. I mean, nothing works perfectly, but it's uh, it's definitely a great step. I think all the brewers like working on it, you know, and now we all have experience working on automated brew houses, which is cool. That's so. awesome. All right. So I know you're you're involved with Jameson's in their Castmate Drinking Buddies program. That is yep. correct. Can you talk a little bit about that and the beers that you've brewed? Yeah. For that program. Yeah. I mean, so basically, um, we. We're huge Jameson fans. Uh, you know, we're known for we. shot and beer combos around <laughs> town. Um, but um, but yeah, we we got approached by Jamesons. Actually, we we ran a really cool program. Uh, the the Pernod rep had a really cool idea with with castmates originally the first year it was out of pairing it with DC Brow. So we were doing tastings with Jameson. So we would set up at a retail account, and I would pour Brow right next to him pouring Jameson. Mm. And that was sort of the initial, you know, foot in the door with, with Jameson. And um, then when they wanted to bring the castmates program to D.C., we were sort of a natural fit because we'd already been doing this official program with them tasting. And right. we met with Jameson. Um, they came to the brewery. They checked it out. They explained how the program worked. And we were really into it. I mean, for us, you know, to be aligned with such a prestigious worldwide brand right. was really cool. Yeah. Um, I'm not, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. We are sort of humbled by it. It was like, Hey, this is, this is awesome. And it's a great testament to the product that we're putting out that they would want to pair with us. And we had nothing but utmost respect to Jameson. So, um, it was a really cool concept and a cool idea when they brought it to us. Uh, and you know, basically the way it works is they ship us barrels, mm-hmm. we fill them with beer and then we release it as a co-branded product. Awesome. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. And the two beers that we've brewed, we, we've got one beer this year. This is our second year doing it that's a repeat. And we've got one new beer. And maybe Jeff, we actually just tasted all of them earlier today, right before you guys <laughs> right. came. So we, we're, we just missed it. Nice, nice nice it. We're a little loose right now because of that, but we did just taste like 13 barrel aged beer samples. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So last year when we first did it, um, we did two stouts. Uh, one was like a lacto stout called Your Pet Cow, and the other one was a Belgian stout called uh, Cross Quarter Days. And so we repeated Your Pet Cow just because, you know, coupled with the barrel character and the lactose in it, I mean, it's like drinking a slightly boozy milkshake, but the mouthfeel <laughs> was great, the aroma was great. Um, and Jameson definitely was like, hey, that's cool that you guys did two stouts, but we have a Caskmate stout and IPA brand. So if you could brew an IPA this year, that would be great. So. 
we obliged and did kind of a, um, I did like kind of a hybrid American English barley wine with like a heavier hop load. And um, yeah, you know, we're pulling it out of barrel. We're going we're gonna to dry hop it post barrel because I didn't want oh, all those, okay. that hop character to go away. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called Stand and Deliver. Nice. Um, yeah, I did like a two-hour extended boil on that to kind of get the natural Maillard reaction. So it was just, you know, pretty much scratch as far as the malt, just like a base two row. And it's mm. a lot of fun brewing. Cool. Um, you know, huge Whirlpool edition. And yeah, this is hopefully going to be packaged and shipped out um, the beginning of August. And then uh, towards the beginning of September, we're going to get the uh, Your Pet Cow, which is a lactose stout out of barrels. But Nice. Yeah, it's great. We got a lot of activations planned around it, you know, in the kind of second half of Q3. And, yeah, I'm hoping that, I don't know, they make us a permanent partner on this one. Yeah, cool. I don't, I don't ever get bored of playing around with barrel aged yeah. beers. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, and working with them has just been great on this project. And then besides the project also, I mean, they, they do a bartender's ball in a lot of their, their big market cities. Mm-hmm. And they threw it here last year. And it was just a beautiful event to behold. I mean, they came in in one day and transformed this place mm-hmm. uh, into this beautiful, you know, whiskey oasis. Um, <laughs> nice. They uh, they really are just a great crew to work with. All right. Okay. Well, we know you guys got to get back to everything you have to do. We got one more question. Sure. Given that you guys are are godfathers of brewing in D.C. Thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> one day you will it's ask terrible. me for a favor. <laughs> um, what, are some of the, what are some of your favorite other local beers and breweries? What are some, what are some things that are out there that you guys have really oh, been man. enjoying? Um, I, I mean, Diamonds for a Coat, Champagne is yeah. like, you know, that's a go-to yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that's uh, a great one. Mm-hmm. I, I do, whenever I'm in there and that's on, I pop in and uh, grab one of the yeah, yeah. I would say, I mean, having gotten gotten back into or newly into some of the hazier stuff. I mean, I like Three Stars Ultra Fresh. I like Solace is partly cloudy. Mm-hmm. Union's Old Pro Goza. Um, man, who else? Uh, what is it? Forbidden Planet at Blue yeah, Jacket. Yeah, that's one of my yeah. favorites. Love the Red Line. Uh, what is it? The Red Line Ale. I think Hellbender does. Yep. Yep. Um, who am I leaving off? Probably a you, couple. I mean, everything District Chop House, you know, produces Barrett's yeah. a veteran, so yeah, yeah. he can do no wrong. But uh, anything Bill made at Mad Fox, anything, yeah, Mad anything. Fox. We were there Orange last. Trip. We were there last week, and, and yeah. uh, when they were doing their celebration, we've been out at Ocelot, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and talking to, and, and also talking to Jasper. But but we were just like, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go to Mad. Gotta Fox. get that Kolsch again. We Definitely. had the Kolsch and the Orange Whip. Uh, just because had to, but oh, yeah. anyway, listen, uh, thank you guys of so course. much uh, uh, for being here and for doing this. Uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to this as much as we've enjoyed listening to you guys talk about the history uh, and, and the beer that you guys are making. Uh, and obviously, everybody thanks you for like taking that fight on. Oh, sure. Uh, we wouldn't be where we are today as a city and a region, really, with, with, with craft beer if it weren't for the stuff that you guys did. That is for sure. Well, appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, we're we're hap- happy to, you know, get out in front of the gates, and now we have a great burgeoning industry, you know, in the DMV area. So yep. awesome. glad to be a part of it. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us on the DC Beer Show. Remember, you can find us online at DC Beer on all the social medias, dcbeer.com for all the latest news and a complete calendar of what's going on in the DC area, on the whole DMV, actually. And remember, always drink great beer. That's right. <laughs>